Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. You know, when you read the book of Romans, you get the idea that the Apostle Paul is not nice, that the Bible is not nice when talking about you and your sin. So why is so much Christian teaching so nice when the Bible doesn't seem to be? Why aren't we Christians saying no more nice guy and dealing with the sin in our own lives? Well, it feels like we have finally arrived. I looked it up and I checked it out and it's taken us 16 sermons, including today, to get through this long, difficult case that Paul makes against us, against me and against you. It's been a long, long case and we've been in it for a while now. We started the study of this passage in May of 2020. And we were in it for uh, May and June. We took July off, did something else. We did it in August and September and part of October. And we picked it up again uh, just this month. So we've been in it for quite a while. It's this long, hard, difficult case. It's been difficult because it's, it's hard to read. Frankly, it's, it's, it's tough. Paul says a lot of harsh things about us, things that we don't really want to read. He says a lot of stuff that isn't good. Like, for example, in Romans 2, 5, in this same case, he says, because you, you religious person, are stubborn and you refuse to turn from your sin, your religious sin. He says, you are storing up terrible punishment For you, for a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Yeah, it's been all these verses, 67 or so verses of this kind of stuff, this harsh, hard language about us as Paul makes his case. And this is the opening to his letter. I mean, really, it's, it's brief introduction and then classic statement about not being ashamed of the gospel. And then, bam, he just starts rapid fire punching us with bad news, bad news, bad news. And it's over and over and over again, and it hurts. He says a lot of hard stuff, and this is the first blank on your page. Paul is not nice about our situation. Paul is not nice about our situation. He's ugly about it. He's harsh about it, not nice. This is hard for us because, well, let's just be honest. We're Southerners. We expect you to be nice, right? We expect you, we're Southerners. We expect you to be polite, to be courteous, to be nice, you know? So we say things like, bless your heart, right? We say that. And we all know that does, not, that does not equate to a blessing, right? That means you're an idiot, right? Yeah, it does, and you know it. When you hear it like I hear it, oh, bless your heart, right? So we expect you to be nice because we're in the South. But here's the thing I want to just point out real quick if I can. So there's Southern nice, but then there's 
Ella J. Nice. All right, and the two are a little different from each other. Do you, I don't know if you've had this, uh, this happen to you like it happens to me from time to time around here in Ella J. I think only in Ella J. You all roll up to the stop sign and nobody will move. Right, and it's not because they're scared. It's not because they don't know how to work a stop sign. It's because they're all being so nice. They've gotten there first, but they're like, oh, you go ahead. You just go ahead. It's all right, you just take the turn. And no one will move. Have you seen that? Yeah, and so I'm sitting there going, no, it's your turn. You got here right before me. Uh, So it's you, you go. And they're like, oh, no, 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 you just go right out. You go right on ahead. And no one will move, so I'll just take the turn. Okay, I'll just go. It's totally wrong, but I'll do it, (laughs) right? Have you seen that? Ella J, nice. See, here's the thing about it, though. For all of us, it's possible to be wrong and to be nice at the same time. You you hear me? I'm going to say it again. It's possible to be wrong and to be nice at the same time. And Paul will not do that. Paul is not going to do that to us. You see, wrong combined with nice can fool people. Wrong combined with nice can lull you into a false sense of security, right? Nice can make you all easy and comfortable and cause you to let your guard down while wrong will stab you right in the back. Am I right? You know what I'm talking about? Elegy Nice. Paul is not going to do that. He is not going to trick you. He isn't trying to pull something over on you. He doesn't want there to be any confusion at all going on here. He doesn't want to take one small chance on faking you out with nice. In other words, Paul would really rather deal straight with you and hurt your feelings than fake nice you right to hell. Hello? He'd rather shoot straight with you and hurt your feelings a little bit than fake nice you right to hell. Seems like so much Christian teaching today is much more about the nice than the truth. Seems like we're all about the nice. We like the good news, but we never want to acknowledge the bad news. We want to be teaching all positive and upbeat and affirming. And good grief, it's 2021. Don't we all need some positive, upbeat, and affirming news? We do. I do. Uh, You know me, I love to give positive, affirming news. I love to be upbeat and positive, but I also have to be honest, right? Is anybody else in the room besides me? (laughs) I feel like the warmth in the room is lulling us all to sleep. Um, (laughs) Paul is not going to play games with us. He's going to deal with our situation. He's not going to be nice about it. He is going to be truthful about it because he's looking at us and he sees that our situation is dire it's desperate it's terminal and Paul wants to tell the truth about it because you can't cure the disease without a proper diagnosis so if you think about it if all you're preaching is nice then you aren't dealing honestly with the situation you're just causing people to live in denial You're not being nice, really. You're looking at a cancer patient, realizing that they've only got maybe days, maybe weeks to live, and you're saying, oh, look, I've got the cure, and you give them a sugar pill and tell them it's all going to be okay. That's not nice. That's cruel. That's hateful. It's deceptive. 
And that's what Paul is not going to do. He is making this long, hard case. Uh, he didn't mean for it to be taken apart like we've taken it apart. I mean, we, we've taken it apart little piece by little piece by little piece by little piece, and we've looked at it over months and months. But Paul originally intended for this to all be read together and for it to all weigh you the heck down. He wants to get you feeling it and knowing how heavy this weight is. He gets to the end of this long case and he makes his summary of his whole long argument right here in Romans 3.9. This is what I want us to look at today. Romans 3.9, he says, all people. Raise your hand if you're an all person. If you're all, yeah, you're one of the all. Yeah, okay, me too. He says, all people, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, that means whether they're religious or irreligious, all people are under the power of sin. Yeah, Paul's summary is just that, and I wanted you to write it down. So the next blank on your page is that all people are under sin. Paul says under sin. We say under the power of sin in our English translations. It has overpowered you. It has taken control of you. It is powerful, and you are powerless under it. It means that it is in charge, and you are enslaved to it. Sort of like a volunteer audience member at a Las Vegas hypnotist show, you are hypnotized under the power of sin and you're not aware of the reality around you and you're incapable of doing anything except what the hypnotist instructs you to do. Are you feeling it yet? Because Paul wants you to feel it. That's why he keeps banging on it and banging on it and banging on it and not being nice. And he's a good preacher, right? He's a good preacher and he makes his case like this so that you and I will feel it. That's why he's not nice. Most of us don't feel it. I mean, most of us, we're just not, we're not feeling the bad news. We, you and I, we don't tend to perceive ourselves as ever having been under the power of sin. Honestly, let's just be honest about it. We look around and we see some sinners in this world. They're on the headlines. You know, they may be on Facebook. They may be on the news. We know there's sinners in this world. And we look around at them and we look at ourselves and we go, you know, as sinners go, I'm really not that bad. I'm, I'm actually kind of, I mean, as sinners go, I'm a pretty good sinner. I, I mean, I don't really do much. I'm pretty good. Right? I mean, I've never shot anyone. I used, I used to work on a church staff with a lady um, who was on her second marriage because she shot and killed her first husband uh, and she went to prison for it and then she was released and now yeah I see you covering your wife's ears over there um, I don't blame you I should do that too um, yeah and so I, I mean listen I think about people like that I'm like I'm pretty I'm pretty good never shot anybody I never I've never knocked over a convenience store right I, I'm pretty I'm pretty good I go to church on Sundays I mean, heck, I serve on uh, uh, the First Impressions team or the children's ministry. I, I serve in some way. I'm in a life group. Heck, I even give to the church, and nobody makes me. I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm, I'm really, uh, honestly, I, if I could be honest, I'm pretty good. So I don't really know that I'm that bad in the first place. We're not feeling it. Gospel writer Luke tells us the story of the day when Jesus goes to Simon Peter's house, and 
He gets in there, and there's a lot of people that come crowding in to listen to what Jesus has to say. So the house is crowded with people. Most of them are religious people, very religious people. There's some Pharisees. They're like the top dogs in the religious circle. And they're all there talking, just waiting for Jesus to do whatever Jesus is going to do. And somehow in this crowd, there's also this woman. And she's not a good sinner. She's a bad sinner. She's really, really bad. She's a woman of ill repute, an immoral woman, some translations say. Okay, she's probably a prostitute. So she's bad. And Jesus is in the house, and everybody's watching to see what Jesus is going to do about this bad girl that's just walked in. When she comes in, she's carrying what may be her retirement plan, an extremely expensive jar, alabaster jar of perfume. Okay, it's not worth like 60 bucks or 80 bucks or 100 bucks. This may be her life's savings represented here. And she comes in, and she anoints Jesus's feet with the oil that's in this with the perfume oil that's in this alabaster jar and weeping she's wiping his feet with her hair she's down on her knees in this humiliating position and she is pouring out what is valuable to her She's ascribing worth to Jesus. She's pouring value onto Jesus. She's demonstrating that he is worth all that she has. And she's crying and she's humbling herself before him. This is a, an amazing form of worship. And all the religious people go, oh, that's what we should do, right? No. They all cross their arms and they start talking to each other. They're like, man, if Jesus only knew, if Jesus only knew that this hooker was touching him, he would not tolerate this. He would kick her out on her dirty, nasty, trampy butt. There's no way he would let her do this if he just knew Jesus is ignorant. So they're all talking amongst themselves about this woman and Jesus. And Jesus does this kind of crazy thing house is not giant it's crowded so Jesus just starts up a conversation with Simon Peter and the conversation is much worse than you might think it would be here's how it goes Jesus calls Simon Peter over to himself and he tells him this story he says Simon Peter look at this Luke 7 he says a man loaned money to two people 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to another. So one gets 500 and one gets 50. It's a lot of money in either case, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. So, Simon Peter, who do you suppose loved him more after he canceled the debt? Simon answered, uh, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, duh. I think that's the original Greek was duh, right? Sorry, the King James, <laughs> verily, verily, duh, F. <laughs> 
But the New Living Translation says, that's right, you got it right. That's right. Then he turned to the woman. Now look at this. It's worse than you thought. He turned to the woman and he says to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. Simon, when I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Simon, disciple, Simon, follower of me, Simon, the one who, who threw the net overboard even when it didn't make any sense and obeyed me, Simon, you didn't greet me with a kiss. But from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. Simon, you, Christian, walker with Jesus, neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with this rare perfume I tell you her sins and they are many they've been forgiven so because of her forgiveness she has shown me much love but look at this a person who is forgiven little shows only little love Jesus is saying that a person who feels it pours themselves out for him but the person who doesn't really feel it doesn't really give Jesus much more than the time of day what Jesus is kind of saying here is something we always say at the Orchard Church he's saying that the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad you can only appreciate how good the gospel is in your life if you can you can only appreciate the goodness once you see how bad your sin really is that's why Paul is trying to make us feel it. He's trying to make us feel the weight of our sin. But I don't think we really feel it. Maybe our corporate worship is tepid. Maybe our sacrifice is small. Maybe our passion for him is weak because we don't feel it. We don't realize from what we've been forgiven because we aren't so bad we're good sinners we grew up in church done everything pretty much right we've been forgiven little in other words for a lot of us let's just be honest the cross isn't really that big of a deal but man it was a big deal to Jesus wasn't it that's why Paul makes this long case. That's why he's not willing to be L.J. nice about it. He's being truthful that God is angry at my religious, Baptist, non-denominational, pastor, church person sin. I grew up in church and God is angry at my sin and judgment is coming for my sin and there's nothing that I can do to keep God from being angry. I know, I know preachers today, you're not used to hearing this passage taught much because preachers today like to avoid passages like this one. But we need to read this. We need to feel this that we have committed outrageous violations against the king. So Paul's a good preacher. He's just hitting us and hitting us and hitting us. He takes all these verses to build his case against us, and then <coughs> he just hits us with a bunch of verses. 
What he does next is just quote verse after verse after verse after verse so that we'll understand where he's coming from, from Scripture. That's what I try to do. I try to build my case and verse after verse. So Paul does exactly that. <clears throat> he summarizes this case that uh, all of us are under sin. And then he says this in Romans 3.10, as the Scriptures say, and then he hits us with about 10 different quotes from a bunch of Old Testament verses. Here they are. No one is righteous not even one. No one is truly wise, and no one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Man, that's worse than morning breath combined with coffee breath. All right, the things that come out of our mouths stink like an open grave with a rotting dead corpse inside. Thank you, Sherry. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace, and they have no feel of God, of God fear of God at all. Can't even talk. <clears throat> Does that sound Ella J. nice? All these rapid-fire quotes from the Scripture about our situation. And I don't have time to unpack even half of them, so I just want us to look at two of them real quick. The first one Paul says at the very top of his quotation part is this. It's the next blank on your page. No one is righteous. No one is righteous. Psalm 14, 1 is what he's quoting. No one is righteous. There is none who does good. In the Greek translation of this passage, it says, there is none righteous. That's right, even the Jewish people, even the good Jewish people. You might be thinking, well, no, 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 the Jewish people, God said they were righteous in his eyes. <sighs> yes, God chose to see them righteous, but did they, were they righteous? I mean, think about it. Even King David, King David the most righteous of all of the Jewish righteous people, King David. God himself calls King David the man after what? After God's own heart. So he's a righteous dude. You're like, wait a minute, but David blew it with Bathsheba, didn't he? Yeah, and then he repented. Okay, time out from the sermon here. Let me just, let me just say this. I'm just gonna say it. I really feel like God's looking for repentant hearts, not proud hearts. And I've known an awful lot of proud religious people who love to point out the sin in others. And they're like, oh, yeah, that person's bad, that person's evil. I will have nothing to do with that person. Boy, I've seen that in church. I've seen it in church all my life. But I've also seen the person who does wrong, who, who blew it, who really made a big mistake, be convicted by that. Someone will go to him, a pastor or someone from the church and say, hey, this is wrong. Let's get this right. And I've watched them go, God's right, I'm wrong. And they have a humble, contrite heart toward God. That's the person God's looking for. That's a person after God's own heart. Because I don't care how proud you are, you're gonna blow it. And the prouder you are, the more you bow up, the less you feel the weight of your sin. God's looking for repentant people. And David was just such a man. That's why God called him a man after his own heart. And David, the righteous among all the righteous, 
he writes this in Psalm 5. It's a prayer. He says, because of your unfailing love, I can enter your house. I will worship at your temple with deepest awe. Lead me in the right path, O Lord, or my enemies will conquer me. Make your way plain for me to follow. In this prayer, David is acknowledging that he doesn't get it right, that he blows it, that he, in fact, is a sinner, and the only way he can come into the temple courts of God is to be led there by grace, to be led there by the mercy of God. He recognized his need for God, and he had a broken and contrite heart about it. What this means for us is, listen to me, listen to me, LJ Christian, just because your grandfather planted a church somewhere doesn't mean you're in. Just because, because your family uh, raised you in church and they were all involved and you just were always in church, just because you punch an attendance card doesn't mean you're in. It's not the way it works just because you grew up in church all your life. Just because you're a Southern American and you vote Republican, it doesn't mean you're in. That's not what that means. You can't do it. There is nothing you can do to keep God from being angry because you're not righteous enough. You blow it. You break God's heart by breaking his law. No one is righteous. The other, the next thing he says, the next thing I'm going to try to take apart is the next thing he says here. No one is seeking God. That's your next blank. No one is seeking God. He's really quoting the same passage here, Psalm 14, 1 and 3, which says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, right? The fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt and they do abominable deeds. I love that word, abominable. Where do you see that word except for right before the word deeds in the Bible and right before the word snowman? snowman. That's right. <laughs> so they're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good, and they have all turned aside. This phrase right here is a Hebrew idiom. It means they are not seeking God. They're not going in the right direction, not seeking God. They're not seeking God. No one, no one, no one seeks God. I think about seeking something. I think about Indiana Jones. Do you love the Indiana Jones movies like I do? Okay, the first one and the third one, right? The second one was the first bad one. And then they made that other bad one about, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. You know they're making a fifth one now? Right now, Harrison Ford is shooting Indiana Jones, you know, the, the old crotchety years, you know. <laughs> he's like 100 years old. He's like Bill Starley old, and he's still cracking the whip. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Bill Starley. You're not 100. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> oh, man, he's... Anyway, they're making probably another really bad one, I'm guessing. Um, but... Indiana Jones, you know, in the second one, the first bad one, he keeps quoting this thing, you know, talking about what he's seeking after. Maybe you remember, he's always talking about fortune and glory, seeking after fortune and glory. He's going after the archaeological treasure, seeking fortune and glory. He knows what he's after. And so because he's after this, he's got the education, right? He's got all the equipment. 
He knows all the stuff, and he completely gives himself to the task. I mean, he goes on the adventure and risks it all over and over and over again just to seek and find what he's seeking. That's what Indiana Jones does. I don't get that picture when I think of most Christians. I, I, I don't get the Indiana Jones doing whatever they got to do to seek and find God. Can I get that last verse right back up here real quick, Joyce? Here's what I get. I get this picture here. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. I, I, know, I know you would never say there is no God. You probably wouldn't be sitting here in church today if you thought there was no God. Might it interest you to know that the original Hebrew here and then later on the Greek when Paul writes it doesn't actually say there is no God. As he's quoting Psalms, the Psalm says, the fool says in his heart, no God. No God. For me, there's a comma. The fool says in his heart, no, God. No. The fool resists God. You see, you and I should be repentant, but instead we're resistant. You and I should be seeking after God, but instead we push back against God. Don't lie to me and say that you are seeking God because I know you argue with him. You fight with him. I know you push back on him. You want his blessings. You want his grace. You want the gifts that he has to bring, but you don't want his actual authority in your life. When it comes to control, you'll just control it yourself. Because if there's anything worth doing, it's worth doing yourself. And so you and I, honestly, if we were to be honest, more times than not, instead of knowing God, we're saying no, God. We push back, we fake it, or we, or we compartmentalize. We have our Christian stuff here, and then we have all the rest of our life here. And we don't want God to actually control our lives. We don't want to submit to him. We love to sing the song that we're going to be singing here in a little bit, that nothing is better than you. Lord, there's nothing, nothing better than you. But we live our lives as if anything was better than him. We live our lives as if we want everything the world has to offer and we'll give him an hour on Sundays. We should be repentant instead of resistant. We should actually turn and seek him in the Old Testament, God speaks to a people that have wandered far. They have resisted and resisted, and they will not turn to him. They will not repent. He's speaking to his own people, the Jewish people. And he's telling them that you're going to get what you're seeking after. And it's not me. You're going to go into captivity. Things are going to be hard for you for a long time. It's going to be painful. And generations will come and go not knowing me. But he makes them this promise, and you're familiar with at least part of it, I'm sure. In Jeremiah 29, he says, well, I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for good and not disaster. 
If you will seek me instead of seeking all these other things, then you'll find the plans, plans for good and not disaster, to give you a future and a hope. He goes on and he says, in those days, in those days, when you're finally starting to rediscover me, he says, when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, if you actually seek me, you will find me. I will be found by you and I will end your captivity and I will restore your fortunes. It's not because of you. It's because of him. It's because of what he did for us on the cross, right? I know we like to think of Jesus as a kind, sweet, tolerant, meek, quiet, kind of a pushover of a guy. But think of it this way for just a second. God created the heavens and the earth. And he made you and me in his image. He made you and me to be like him, to look like him, to walk with him, to have fellowship with him, to reflect his glory and his beauty, to be people of power and overcoming victory. That's what he designed you for. But then you and I, we rebelled against him. We resisted him. We turned away from him. We quit seeking him and instead started seeking whatever we wanted. We rebelled. We became traitors against him. We declared war against him. And he could have resisted us right back. He could have resisted us right back. Because he is in the throne room of heaven, watching us. And he could have just crossed his arms and said, you know, you'll get what you want. You're going after all that, whatever else that is, and it's killing you. It's destroying you. It's ruining you. It's breaking everything about you. Now there's crime. Now there's violence. Now there's poverty. Now there's disease. And it's all because you're seeking that instead of me. Okay, you get what you want. Sucks to be you. But there was that one day when he wouldn't put up with it any longer. And Jesus stood up in the throne room of heaven to declare war on your sin and my sin. He stood up from the throne and he left the throne room and he came here and lived here to shine his bright light into the world, right? He shines his light like a spotlight pointing out our sin so that we can see clearly where the darkness is. He shines his light like a searchlight seeking you, trying to find you in the darkness. And he comes here and he finds you. He finds me and he finds our sin. And what he does is he will not put up with it. He's not going to be Mr. Nice Guy anymore. No more Mr. Nice Guy for Jesus. He hates our sin because of what it does to us. So Jesus attacks it head on. He grabs all of that sin and pulls it in onto himself. Because sin must be judged. It must be paid for. It must be destroyed. And so he hates it so much that he takes it all out in a violent, bloody, murder-suicide. Jesus kills your sin by dying with it on the cross. 
That's how much he hates what it's doing to you and to me. He dies on the cross, and then three days later, he rose again to give us that new, victorious, light-filled life so that you can walk in victory and power and peace and be one with him, no longer under the power of sin, under the control of sin, but now free to know him and be like him once and for all. Jesus wasn't about to be nice about it any longer. And so my challenge to you today is to stop loving the thing that's killing you. To say, this is the last blank on your page, to say, no more nice guy when it comes to sin. Stop tolerating it. Stop putting up with it. Paul's made his case, and we still dabble with it. No more nice guy. It's time to end it. It's time to kill it. It's time to let him have his way with us because his way is always better than our way. Can I get an amen?